You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello and welcome to Chthonia, the podcast that deals with the Dark Feminine. I'm your host, Breach Burke. And now as we're moving into the month of December, I wanted to do some podcasts on some winter feminine figures, um, either goddesses um, or folk tales that deal specifically with the sort of dark female figures that are associated with winter. Last year, we had talked about, you know, winter hags and um, some of the uh, <clears throat> Frau Perl, uh, uh, Perkta and Grilla and some of these um, very scary sort of Icelandic and Germanic figures who are, you know, typically associated with, um, you know, they, sometimes they're associated with Christmas or they're, they're associated with, you know, the, the winter holidays. So for this year, I decided I was going to, we're going to go back, back north and we're going to look at the goddess Skadi. Now Skadi, um, okay. We use the term, um, I'm using the term uh, goddess here, but the, the term that is actually used for her in Nordic mythology is um, yutan, okay, which is a term that means, it, it refers to, it, it's, they, it's a term that they use, sometimes it's translated as troll, but I think it's, it's not necessarily so much that we're talking about trolls, we're talking about um, beings that beings that sort of predate the gods like divine figures of some kind and sometimes they're not referred to as gods now i believe that uh, scotty is also considered part of the pantheon of norse gods however she's um you know however her she is actually considered to be a giantess and she is the daughter of a giant called um Thiazi. And she and and who was actually ended up being killed by Odin, and so of course this, well what what happened was that Scotty actually decides that she wants revenge, uh, for her father because she loved her father and she was you know she was angry and grieved and wanted some kind of reparation for her father's uh, death and, and and the gods wanted to give her some kind of material reparation, but she did not want that she wanted to actually fight, um, as a as a reparation, you know, she wanted she wanted she wanted revenge in, in in fighting and in blood, not in um, not just in receiving stuff. I mean that that idea of reparation is definitely um, it's not certainly not exclusive to um, Scandinavia. It's also a, a it, it's also an idea that carries on. You know, we see it in ancient Greece, for instance. You know, the idea of uh, reparations. Uh, Thucydides talks about. Um, you know, he talks about some of the ancient myths, like the Argonautica, in terms of reparations. That um, that the stealing of the um, the golden fleece and carrying off Medea uh, by Jason uh, was, you know, somehow connected to the retribution for um, Paris steer- stealing Helen and and not um, making any uh, proper reparations. There's all there's all kinds of um, you know. Th- there's this idea that if you um, I, you know, and, and also at the, okay, probably closer to home is probably Brehan Law, which you see in Ireland, or you saw in ancient Ireland, where um, basically it's almost like each person has, is, has a certain value. So um, depending on the, the class you came from uh, or the, the role that you played in society, 
you know, you might be worth, considered to be worth, I don't know, five cattle or something like that. So if somebody killed you, then they would have to give a reparation to your family of five cattle. You know, there's this, this idea is, um, you definitely see this idea a lot in the ancient world in different parts uh, and in different ways. The idea that you can exchange something of material value to make up for the loss of somebody, um, which is which is rather interesting when you think about it, because we have so we have developed this idea of the soul and the spirit, um, and, and this idea of human life as being like the most valuable thing ever. And really, what what that does is it doesn't really put it on any more of a, a value than you would on animal life. Um, and again, that's a different different mythology, different way of looking at things. I wouldn't say it's necessarily better or worse, or though, though I'm, I'm not sure I would be comforted by the idea that um, if somebody killed me, they could just be like, oops, sorry, and, and give my parents, like, I don't know, 10 cattle or some, something. I don't know. I don't, I don't think I, it would make me feel better to know that that was how they, how they resolved it. But nonetheless, that was the system. Um, and it's not, um, and it, it seems to be, there seems to be a lot of uh, societies of that time and, and tribal societies that definitely um, had that way of, um, of dealing with justice, I suppose you might say. Okay, so, Scotty, let's, let's, uh, let's get on to the details about her. Now, some people say the name Scotty, um, that, that the word Scandinavia actually contains Scotty. I, I, some of the etymolo- etymologies don't necessarily support that um sometimes it's yeah here it says it's uncertain but maybe connected with the original form of scandinavia um some place names in scandinavia refer to scotty um and she's associated uh well okay another possible meaning of her name is the word um an old norse noun meaning harm which again they're not i don't think there's any um i I think that's a disputed but not necessarily Given, given how dangerous she was, that isn't necessarily um, far off. She is a, a goddess associated with winter, or Yotun uh, associated with winter, and also associated with skiing in particular. Um, and she is, uh, yeah, bow hunting, skiing, winter, and the mountains, okay? Which, which you know, when you think about it, that, that makes sense. They do all seem to go together, and you do see these winter figures that are associated with the mountains. Certainly in the mountains, um, winter happens longer and, and more often than anywhere else. Uh, you know, if, if anybody's ever either gone mountain climbing or gone to a place where there's, you know— you know, gone to a mountain range, you know, you know that there's only a certain window of time in the summer that you can go before uh, the snows start to come in. And even there, I, I remember being, for instance, um, around Mount Shasta, we were up on the Lassen Volcanic Park um, in Northern California, um, probably, oh gosh, it's a number of years ago now. But I remember being up there with my family and, and uh, we were walking through. I mean, you know, you have these beautiful, you know, flowers and greenery and you're walking, you know, past creeks and things. And all of a sudden you have these banks of snow. <laughs> so we're sitting there throwing snowballs at each other. But, um, but yeah, but there's always snow in the mountains. So that, that makes sense that you would have that kind of association. Now, there's a few particular stories associated with Scotty. And it might be good to start with those stories and then kind of break it down from there and talk about the different symbolisms associated with her. Um, now, okay, the, the first story, of course, will have to do with her father um, and his and his um, being slain by Odin. Um, the other next has to do with the, her um, coming into having a spouse, 
and her spouse's name was uh, Njortur. And so there's there's the, the story of their, their rather short-lived marriage, actually. We're, we'll talk about that. Her relationship to the god Loki, the trickster god, okay, that, which is, uh, spoiler alert, very contentious relationship. She was... Um, um, there's actually two elements to the story of Loki. One has to do with laughter, and one actually has to do with uh, her getting revenge on him um, or, or punishing him. So, okay, so let's see what stories we have. Okay, so if we start with, um, okay, we're starting with the poetic Edda uh, poem, um, Grimnismal. The god Odin, disguised as Grimnir, reveals to the young Agnar the existence of 12 locations. He mentions the lo- location of uh, Thrymhir. I, I hope I'm saying that right. Um, Thrymhir is what it looks like. Sixth in a single stanza. In that stanza, Odin details that the Yutun uh, Thiazi once lived there, and that now his daughter Skadi does. Odin describes uh, Thrymhir as having as consisting of ancient courts and refers to Skadi as the shining bride of the gods. In the prose introduction to the poem uh, Skirnismal, the god Freyr has become heartsick for a fair girl, um, and has, uh, he has spotted in <clears throat> Yutunmir. The god Nir, let's see now, let's see the god Nirthor asks Friar's servant uh, Skirnir to talk to Friar, and the first stanza of the poem, Skadi also tells Skirnir to ask Friar why, he, Friar why he is so upset. Skirnir responds that he expects harsh words from their son, Friar. Okay, so this is just places where she's mentioned in the Eddas. Um, in the prose introduction to the poem Lokasena, Skadi is referred to as the wife of Nirthor and is cited as one of the goddesses attending Adria's feast. After Loki has an exchange with the god <clears throat> Heimdler, uh, Skadi interjects. Skadi tells Loki that he is lighthearted and that Loki will not be playing with his tail wagging free for much longer, for soon the gods will bind Loki to a sharp rock with the ice-cold entrails of his son. Ooh, sounds nice, right? Loki responds that even if this is so, he was first and foremost at the killing of Thiazi, which is the really bad thing to say to her, because this is her father. Skadi responds that if this is so, baneful advice will only flow from her sanctuaries and plains. Loki responds that Scotty was more friendly in speech when Scotty was in his bed, an accusation he makes to most of the goddesses in the poem and is not attested in elsewhere. Loki's flitting then turns to the goddess Sif. Okay. So yes, that's another thing. He, he, he claims to, he, he, Loki being the trickster god, claims to have slept with all these um, goddesses. Now, they, they say that actually he has, he has not slept with Scotty, but he makes that claim. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. In the prose section at the end of Lokasena, the gods catch Loki and bind him with the innards of his son Nadi, and they turn his son Vali into a wolf. Skadi places a venomous snake above Loki's face. Venom drips from the snake, and Loki's wife Sidun sits and holds a basin beneath the serpent, catching the venom. When the basin is full, Sidun must empty it, and during that time the snake venom falls onto Loki's face, causing him to writhe in tremendous fury, so much that so that all earthquakes stem from Loki's writhings. Um, okay. So, okay, so we have the, uh, so we have the, uh, the story of, um, I want to talk about the story of her marriage. 
um, trying to find because I'm going through some um, original source material here that keeps referring back to you know she's mentioned in this line mentioned in this line and it's probably not necessary to get into that level of detail for what we're doing okay um, Okay, in chapter 56 of the Prose Edda book, um, I'm not going to be able to say it, so I'm not even going to try, um, Bragi accounts to Aegir how the gods killed Thiazi. Thiazi's daughter, Skadi, took a helmet, a coat of mail, and all weapons of war, and traveled to Asgard, the home of the gods. Upon Skadi's arrival, the gods wished to atone for her loss and offered her compensation. Skadi provides them with her terms of settlement, and the gods agree that Skadi may choose a husband from among themselves. However, Skadi must choose this husband by looking solely at their feet. Scotty saw a pair of feet that she found particularly attractive and says, I choose that one. There can be little that is ugly about Baldur, who is actually the, the uh, god that she loves. However, the owner of the feet turned about to, out to be a Nirthor. Scotty also intercalated in the terms of the settlement that the gods must do something she thought impossible for them to do to make her laugh. Okay, now, that's interesting. She's a goddess. Okay, so far, um, Gyazi is a, is a giant. Okay, um... And so, and uh, Scotty is considered to be a giantess. You know, she may, she's a beautiful goddess, but she is, she is like, you know, we can liken her in a way, the way to the Titans. And we're going to talk about that connection. She is, she is a, um, so right now we have her, we see that she is, she is vengeful. Um, we see her in this role as tormenting Loki. And, but now we are also seeing her as a goddess who does not laugh. Okay. Um, she included in the terms of her settlement that they must do something impossible to make her laugh. To do so, Loki tied one end of a cord around the beard of a nanny goat and the other end around his testicles. The goat and Loki drew one another back and forth, both squealing loudly. Loki dropped into Scotty's lap, and Scotty laughed, completing this part of her atonement. Finally, in compensation to Scotty, Odin took Thiazi's eyes, plunged them into the sky, and from the eyes made two stars. Okay. So... Um, so here's the, these are the reparations that were made. Um, now, the reason, by the way, that Thiazi is killed, um, let me just, uh, here we go. Um, she becomes, well, okay, she, Scotty becomes welcomed by the gods of Asgard when she marries one of them. Her father, the giant Thiazi, kidnapped the goddess Idun. I think it's, it's either Idun or Idun, I'm not sure how to say that the beautiful goddess of youth, and therefore or the, god, the gods' apples of immortality. Odin killed him for doing so and rescued Idun. However, Skadi was furious and determined to avenge the death of her father. She took her weapons and stormed the citadel of Asgard, claiming for either revenge or compensation. She gave them the choice of a harmful or benign consequence. Um, so... And says the gods, scared of the ferociousness of Scotty, decided they'd rather give her gold. Scotty didn't want gold since she was already rich from her father and grandfather's pillaging. Odin then offered her a husband from among the Asgardian gods. Okay, now, um, now the god she chose, Nirthor, is the god of the sea, and she is the god of the of you know she is a goddess of the mountains and of the winter. And he is, he is a god, you know, god of the waters. So this, this marriage, um, if we even just look at this purely elementally, is not going to work out. It says, um, Nirthor and Skadi's marriage didn't last long, only half a month. Nirthor couldn't stand the cold and isolated mountains, and Skadi couldn't stand the brightness and noise of the coastline. So they got a divorce. There are different myths about whom Skadi ended up with afterwards. 
Some say she got together with Ullur, the god of winter and archery, which would make sense. But some say she married Odin and gave birth to many sons with him, okay, which is also interesting. Um, because, again, there, there's an implication there of, um, I mean, Odin tends to be this uh, figure we, who we associate. Certainly, he's, he's, he's a central figure in um, Nordic mythology. And Odin is, you know, he, he's, he's heroic sort of in every sense. So to me, that connection with Skadi, if, if, if that story is indeed um, a correct one, would suggest his, um, you know, that there's sort of an integration there. Not only with the feminine, but with, with the dark and the cold feminine. Um, Scotty has many attributes that we see in the, in the dark feminine goddesses. Um, okay, so let me just make sure I have all the stories here. So yeah, so we have the story about her father's death and why he was killed. We have the story of Nirthur, who, who was her husband, um, who you know she picked because he had nice feet. Uh, and that's interesting, too, you know, looking at the feet. Why are the feet of such central importance there? Um, the feet, I mean, if we think about the feet in, you know, more it, it, symbolically, the feet, of course, are the foundation um, in uh, Hindu thinking about, about chakras and so forth. The feet are part, you know, and, and the area, like your legs downward, are sort of considered to be the root. That's your, that's your foundation, and the feet um, are that are sort of that place where you stand on the earth. Um, one washes the feet, right? The feet are considered to be, um, you know, they're 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 sacred in, in in their own way. And I would suggest that, yeah, I would say that they are largely um, they represent something elemental and foundational. You know, where where you place your feet, and of course, how you how you get around, how you move is is through your feet. So they're they're quite important um, in this kind of thinking. I'm thinking now. I'm thinking about it. I'm saying Jung actually did have something to say about the symbolism of feet, but um, I'm not going to remember what it is off the top of my head right now. But I remember that yeah, there's there's definitely um, certainly you know even though the Muladhara chakra is said to be located in the the pelvic area, you know around the the genitals, um, generally you know the feet may also be considered as part of that uh, root region. So again, when you think of rootedness, you're thinking of the earth, you're thinking of elemental beings. Um, and, you know, and, and that, so, you know, so if the idea that this um, elemental goddess should choose somebody by looking at, you know, what, what's foundational to them, their feet. Okay. So, uh, so, so she has this, so she has this very short-lived marriage. And that's interesting too, because she is, she, you're talking about the winter goddess marrying a god, a god of the sea. So winter has to do with, um, we generally think of winter as having to do with a lack of movement. Now, movement's not impossible, especially when you're talking about a goddess dealing with skiing and things like that. Uh, obviously, there are ways to get around. But you're talking more about water that is frozen, okay? Um, you know, we, we think about snow. We think about ice. And, you know, uh, Nirthor tends to have to do with the, the flowing waters, the, you know, the waters of the sea, the waters that uh, you travel upon with boats um, where you go fishing. So <clears throat> it's kind of almost two, two different sides of, of the, the water thing, but they, don't, uh, but they don't end up meshing well together. They don't, um, you know, the, the uh, warm and dynamic waters don't mesh with the frozen ones. 
And that that sort of that element of uh, Scotty too is something that we can see. The fact that she she doesn't laugh. I mean, now now the part of the reason, to be totally fair, we don't know that this is just one of her attributes, but you know, the loss of her father has certainly made her very sad. So she is, um, so she's not, she's, so she doesn't laugh. So if someone can make her laugh, then that, you know, um, that sort of breaks that. Um, that, that sort of very, um, serious, icy cold kind of demeanor that we're seeing, uh, represented in her stories. If you, uh, if you read, if you follow tarot or read tarot, um, one, there's the certainly she seems to have the essence of the suit of swords or perhaps of the queen of swords there's this you know um and generally swords are associated with air so it has to do with that um the intellect it has to do with it can have to do with movement like the winds for example it often has to do with the element of air but the other thing too one of the um I guess you can say on the spectrum of qualities associated with the suit of swords is the, um, the potential to be, to be icy cold, the potential to be unfeeling or to put, um, intellect above, um, you know, above emotion or above feeling, you know, uh, to the, to the exclusion, to the exclusion of thinking about the feelings of others. Although we don't necessarily see that in Scotty. She's somebody who, clearly is very, you know, um, you know, she's grieving. Okay. But the, although that are, there is a queen of swords element there too, because the queen of swords is either considered to be the divorcee or the widower. So her role there is sort of as the woman who has, um, who has experienced death, who has experienced loss and who perhaps is not as, um, lighthearted and, um, emotional and you know as you know as somebody who perhaps has not experienced those things might go into the world more innocently more open with feeling uh as as we as we do when we're when we're young right i mean when you're um when you when you first become aware of such things you know or when you're a child and you have the 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 curiosity and the energy of a child or the first time you fall in love or something like that you have there's, there's an energy there but once, you know, and, and there's a, there's an ecstasy and an energy, but if that is squelched out, that's like pour, that's like pouring cold water on the fire. And the queen of swords tends to represent that sense of, um, you know, you know, so, so, so when the, the, the young romantic man comes to, you know, to, to woo or to make love, she's like, yeah, right, <laughs> whatever, um, you know, not, not easily swayed and not easily deceived. So she's very, very smart woman, very wise, almost associated with the hag figure, which we also associate with winter. But it has to do with that, um, you know, and there's, and there's a barrenness there too. Now, obviously, Scotty here we're seeing is a goddess who bears, who again, if this, if this myth of Odin is true, then they, she has borne many children with, with um, the god Odin. But, and, and this, this actually makes sense to me in, in the context of uh, the Scandinavian countries, because the Scandinavian countries, generally speaking, are, are cold. I mean, they're, you know, they, it's not that they don't have, you know, summers or, or warm days, you know, and they tend to experience, you know, you know, the longest night and the longest day, you know, um, you know, 24 hours of sunlight, 24 hours of darkness. Um, but I met, but it's not an area that's going to be, I mean, well, now with um, climate change, you know, who knows, but 
strictly speaking, we're not, they're not, it's not known for being an area. It's, it's not a balmy area where you're going to go to go to the beach. I mean, you, you know, it, it's got, you know, beautiful cities and there's, there's other reasons to go. And in fact, it probably is a very popular skiing destination because probably they have just due to their location, um, near the, near the, closer to the uh, Arctic circle in the North pole, uh, they just tend to be colder on the whole. So therefore you have, you know, so the idea that you could produce something or that life could come out of something in the wintertime would not be unusual for that kind of a culture, because obviously when, when that's the kind of climate you live in all the time, you, you, you make, you make the best of it. You make life. It's not like, oh, winter represents everything being dead and we have to wait till spring till things are alive again. You know, obviously there's life that goes on with the winter. So Scotty, you know, we definitely seem to see that association there. Now, the other thing I find interesting, okay, the fact that she's a giant. Now, I was looking in um, uh, Marie-Louise, Von, ugh, Marie-Louise von Franz book on uh, the shadow in fairy tales, and, um, and she has a chapter in her book called Cold Evil, and in that chapter, she talks about the symbolism of the giant, okay, or in this case, the giantess. Um, not that, not that we necessarily need to do what the Romans do and separate it out, you know, with the feminine ending, but, um, okay. I just want to find the, uh, okay. Yes. Here she says, talking about the symbolism of the giant primarily. Now she's talking about a male giant because she's telling a different folktale here, but we can still apply this to Scotty and perhaps to her father too. Uh, perhaps, <clears throat> primarily he represents the remaining pagan element which has been repressed and in this particular story receded into the rocks. So <clears throat> to um, so now even though we have... So okay, we're, we're still talking about Scotty within the context of the, the pagan Norse religion. So <clears throat> it may not so much that, that she's a substitute, but certainly the idea that she's elemental. Uh, giants in Germanic mythology are mostly characterized by enormous strength and in general by outstanding stupidity. Well, I don't know whether or not Scotty is, you know, I don't think there's any particular um, commentary made on her intellect. I certainly don't get the impression that she's stupid, but that she is definitely a symbol of strength, just as we have um, other animals or even other just figures in mythology who are considered to be uh, symbols of great strength. In the Trojan War, uh, the era of uh, heroes, we have the idea of um, at least one one tie that people will make. You know, when, when um, Hesiod talks about the age of heroes um, as being before the um, age of iron, between the age of bronze and the age of iron, is um, some people connected up with the biblical story of the Nephilim, who are the giants of the Bible, and in the story of Noah. Um, the, the reason that, uh, Yahweh decides he's gonna, uh, wipe the earth out, you know, wipe the earth clean or Yahweh and the other gods who were there at the time decide that they're going to wipe out, you know, you know, flood the earth and wipe it out is because, um, these angelic figures, now this goes back to, um, Enoch and I think there's another, there's another source for it too. And I'm not remembering it off the top of my head, but I want to say it's primarily, um, Enoch, Book of Enoch, where we see this uh, discussion of the Watchers. And so the idea is that these uh, um, angelic or divine figures that we see in the uh, biblical version uh, fall in love with human women and mate with them, and their children become, their offspring become giants or Nephilim. 
okay? And, and they are considered to be, like, such a great danger um, because of their great strength uh, and, their, and their, their rather chaotic violence that um, Yahweh decides, uh, no, we're going to wipe them off the earth. And, you know, but that there's been some discussion that, you know, the, the, the great heroes of the Trojan War who, you know, who are considered to be these heroes who have these, you know, almost exaggerated and fantastical qualities as warriors, that they may also have been, in a, in a sense, the, the quote-unquote giants, this, this super race of, uh, of warriors that, um, that the Trojan War, well, you know, diff- different things happened to them. Some of them actually were deified after the war. They became, you know, they founded cities elsewhere and became gods. Others, um, you know, fell at odds with the Olympian gods and then, um, you know, uh, and then met, met not very nice ends you know, like Ajax, and um, who is the other one I'm thinking of? Um, it's, uh, my brain's not working today. I'm thinking of the guy who uh, steals the statue of, um, who, you know, who raped, they, they rape Cassandra when they're trying to, you know, when, when she's trying, to, when she clings to a statue of Athena. And now, why, why is the name, I've, I've taught this class so many times, I don't know why the name's escaping me at the moment. Probably some of you listening to this will know who it is. But they get sucked down, he, you know, because he you know, tries to be defiant of the gods, he gets sucked down by a whirlpool uh, that Poseidon sends. So anyway, you have these idea of these, um, these very strong and ferocious figures in the giants. Um, she, von Franz goes on to say, there are any, any number of stories where giants are fooled by little men or weak human beings because too much has gone into their physical growth and not up into their brains. And we see this as a stereotype, too, like the stereotype of, say, the football jock who's all brawn and and no brains. Um, But in older pre-Christian Nordic mythology, giants are also very clever. So they have been stupefied mainly through the contents which have repressed since the Christianization of Norway. Giants are mostly responsible for the weather. They create mist, and in many countries even now, if there are thunderstorms, it is said that the giants are playing in the heavenly countries and rolling their balls or bowling. There are thunder giants, lightning giants, giants responsible for landslides, and for boulders or rocks falling from the mountains. And when the giantesses have had their big wash day, then the whole country is covered in mist. From these associations, we see that they represent the brute, untamed power of nature, a psychological dynamism, mostly of an emotional character which is stronger than man. Therefore, we could associate them with overwhelming emotional impulses which overcome the humanity of man, as does a giant. Okay, and uh, she goes on to say, I want to talk about this with the, uh, relating the giants to the Greek titans, but let me just get on to this next paragraph that she has, um, just to finish what she has to say. The connection of the giant with emotion and affect is practically practically visible in the fact that whenever one gets emotional, one begins to exaggerate. We make, as we say, elephants out of lice, or as another phrase, mountains out of molehills. Uh, a little remark by the other person or any detail becomes an enormous tragedy as soon as we are overwhelmed by our emotion. The emotion itself is what powerful and magnifies everything in our surroundings. In the Apocrypha of the Old Testament, in the Book of Enoch, okay, she brings it up, there are stories of that giants desired human women and mated with them, producing a generation of destructive half-giants which destroyed the surface of the earth. Jung interpreted this in one of his comments as a too-quick inrush of unconscious contents into the realm of collective consciousness. Um, so yeah, again, you've got this idea of this... Um, the, the force of the giants as representing um, something archetypal, something very primordial uh, that can easily overwhelm 
our, our, our conscious way of being, our, our rational minds in our orderly world. In Germanic mythology, giants are the in-between figures between gods and men. In many creation myths all over the world, giants were created before men and were an abortive, not very successful attempt of the gods to produce human beings. Now, of course, in this myth, they are the pre precursors to the gods, much like the Titans are. Then came the generation of man, who was at least seemingly a slightly more successful invention. In certain versions of Nordic myth, giants, on the contrary, came before the gods. Now, here we are. They are the oldest beings in nature. In Nordic mythology, there are ice and fire giants. Here again, the giant is associated with symbols of emotion. On the one side, fire, a symbol of emotionality, and on the other, ice, the opposite, which is identical with it. Only people who are tremendously over-emotional can also be terribly ice-cold. Ice characterizes the climax of an emotional state where it snaps over into coldness or rigidity. You have probably experienced that one can get into a state of hot anger. If that is intensified, one suddenly feels nothing anymore. Emotion subsides and one becomes absolutely ice cold from rage, frozen, and rigid. Uh, in place of the hot emotional reaction is petrified rage or shock or whatever the original emotion may, emotion may have been. One literally gets cold hands and becomes shivery for all the blood vessels contract and one is cold instead of having a hot red head and feeling fiery emotion. Ice is a further step when emotionality falls into the other extreme. So it is fitting that giants in mythology are the rulers of the domains of ice and fire since both states are inhuman and completely out of balance. Okay. Um... So that's all I'm going to read from von Franz because that I think that very adequately makes the point I have and goes back to the point that I made about the Queen of Swords. You know, the one who has experienced that emotion um, has, you know, has experienced that that great emotion, um, perhaps has experienced rage or, you know, rejection or, you know, some other kind of loss. And so therefore there's grief, there's rage that becomes petrified in a way. It's the way in which one might... Um, the way in which it also, I think in, in more of our um, conscious psychological terms, it would be about trying to, you know, uh, the way that we deal with extreme emotion by just suddenly cutting off all emotion and just being like, I'm going to be very rational, I'm going to be very logical, and I'm just going to look at the facts, and uh, I'm not going to allow any of that other stuff in. You know, it's like you want to turn the faucet off, right? But um, then you risk becoming completely alienated from yourself and from that um, instinctual emotional um, side of you uh, that also, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's not really a total indifference because, you know, that's really, you know, a, a complete emotional indifference would be more sociopathic in nature. But this is more like it's it's that opposite of love. It's like you've you the, the, the hurt and the rage is so great that one um, sort of turns into the opposite, but it's really the other side of the coin. Okay, so we see this in Scotty. We see this in the great, um, uh, you know, grief that she has over the loss of her father and then the way in which she is, she is ready to go and do battle. And that's another thing, too. She's very warlike. She's, you know, we, we've talked about the feminine as being warlike. There was one interpretation of this myth where they said, well, she's acting outside the feminine role. And I'm thinking, is she? She's acting perfectly within the dark feminine role. The dark feminine is, is ready to fight, um, She's not, and the fact that she is part of this um, this group of um, Yutun, uh, these 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 giants that precede um, the precede the gods, uh, she is she definitely represents this force. Now, what I wanted to do was uh, sort of compare this to to the Titans, okay? 
in Greek mythology, you know, you have the war between the Titans and the Olympians. Um, once Kronos, um, you know, because the Titans are these sort of original children of uh, Gaia and Uranus. And as we know, Gaia, um, the Earth Mother, and Uranus, the Sky God, what happens at this beginning of creation is that um, as Gaia is giving birth to these children, many of them which are giants and monsters and, you know, um, things like, you know, these these creatures with like a hundred hands, you know, these very scary looking monsters. And Uranus hates them. He, he's either terrified of them, ashamed of them, whatever it is. And Uranus keeps continually trying to shove them back under the earth. So as my... Um, as one of my professors once said, she said, yeah, she says, try to imagine a woman giving birth, and then the husband decides, no, he's going to try to keep sticking the baby back in the womb. Like, yeah, imagine imagine how great that is. So Gaia naturally gets tired of this, because the Earth Mother, um, in spite of our associations, as we know, the darker association of Earth Mother is that um, she um, she's also intimate, as much as she's connected with life and fertility, she's also connected with death. And she is not, not, not willing to take that kind of garbage for very long. So her son Kronos comes along, and Kronos um, volunteers to castrate his father, okay? Which, again, is significant, as I've probably said in, in many other episodes, Kronos is time, okay? We equate him with Saturn in the, in the Roman thinking, but, but Kronos has to do with time. And, of course, that's the root of that word, right? It has to do with chronological or, um, you know, chronology, things, you know, things having to do with... Um, you know, with the element of time. Um, and so here we have time separating heaven and earth. So there's that idea, again, of work moving into that world of separation. And that occurs when, um, you know, we, now you have a separation and now you have, now you're living in the field of space and time. When earth and sky are united, it's a unified field. Now they're separated. And uh, these, you know, and, and you know, more giants and monsters are born when um, Uranus's genitals fall into the ocean, but also the goddess Aphrodite is born too. She, you know, and that's what her name literally means, is foam-born. She comes out of that. But these sort of original gods, um, you know, so, okay, so now you have Kronos. Kronos is now, uh, he's castrated his father, Uranus, who you might have seen as sort of king of the universe before that. So now Kronos is sort of this this king of the universe, this, this you know, titanic king. And what he starts doing is he get he he has a pro there is a prophecy that one of his children will overthrow him. So he is bearing children with Rhea, a goddess of fertility, who's also his sister. And but as the children are born, he's devouring them. Okay. So there's the, there's there's this mythology. Um when I talk about I do a class on the mythology of cannibalism. And this is part of that. The idea of, if you, again, speaking purely archetypally here, the father who devours the son. So instead of giving birth to a son and extending your lineage in the world, you're cutting things short. You're saying, no, I, as the father, have to have all the power all of the time, and I'm not going to expand. Um, you know, you, you see different versions of this, how they play out in family dynamics. When you have um, sort of abnormalities in the mother-father-child relationship um, in any form of that. Um, but this idea of the father who is um, in competition with his son, we see that, that element, and we also see the father who is, um, you, know, you know, yeah, he's not, not willing to yield, the son who gets crushed under the uh, oppressiveness of the father, and eventually will rebel against him. 
So what happens there? Well, Rhea gets really tired of this, you know, just as Gaia did. And Rhea is really another version of an, of an Earth Mother. So she, um, she takes one of her children, happens to be Zeus, and it's, instead of giving him for her husband to her husband to swallow, she wraps up a stone and hands it to him. And the baby's hidden away in a cave. And this is where you have the um, the little dwarves. The um, oh gosh, again, my brain's not working. I know I know what they're called, but um, they they're they're crashing their symbols, and they're keeping the baby. You know, so that um, or you know, Kronos doesn't hear the cries of baby Zeus. And then Zeus is raised by nymphs. He's raised in this idyllic environment. And then in, in the typical hero myth fashion, he eventually comes back and brings the Olympian gods together to challenge his father. Okay. And so what it becomes is it becomes the um, battle between the Olympians and the Titans. Now, not all Titans participated in this, in this row, but there's quite a few that, that did. And all of them were either confined to Tartarus by Zeus down in the deep depths, okay, um, or <clears throat> they were, um, you know, they were, they were usually otherwise imprisoned under the earth. So there's a great symbolism there because the Titans are such a, such a brute, strong force. And the Olympians tend to represent, although we realize it's, it's fairly complicated, they, they tend to, if you want to see the Titans as representing the unconscious, the Olympians represent the stirrings of consciousness they, and of civilization and of, um, because if you think about the roles of all the gods, about the idea of creation in the world, of um, bringing things into being and all of the qualities associated with that. Um, are associated with uh, the Olympians. Whereas, um, you know, the Titans are, are, are these, these, these sort of brute forces, and they, they are now in the underworld, um, and so they would be associated with volc- like volcanic forces. Um, now, you do have Poseidon associated with earthquakes, but, you know, but they, but they, they have to do with these, um, these very strong um, primordial earth forces. So we see the same thing with Scotty. And winter, of course, itself is a formidable and brute force. And here it is represented as a woman, as a woman who is a grieving woman, really, um, because she has grieved for the loss of her father. And in her grief, there's there's a desire for revenge. So it's not that she's without emotion. It's exactly like Von Franz says. It's like there's a rage there and there's, there's an, an, you know, unhappiness that needs to be settled. But it manifests itself perhaps in this, you know, unsmiling, non-laughing you know, sort of manner. Although they do, the gods do manage to break her of that. Um, <clears throat> so I suppose the last bit that we have to talk about with her is the idea of the venom, the snake venom. Uh, she's tormenting Loki um, with this, you know, he is, he, as the trickster, he has d- dirty dealed the gods too many times. Um, this is what happens. They bind him with the entrails of his son. As I said, wow, that's uh, pretty, um, pretty harsh, but... Um, I don't know, given what I think about, you know, what we know about Viking and maybe Scandinavian warfare, maybe that's not so, um, so unusual or so, um, out of place. Uh, he, so he's, you know, and so this, this, so it's the idea of the the venom of the snake. So what does the snake represent? I mean, the snake is that generative force. Again, if we want to look back to our whole series on Hinduism, uh, the Kundalini serpent is the Shakti. So now we have the, the venomous Shakti, the one, the, the one that's, um, that's burning, okay? Now, Loki, just by, by virtue of being a trickster, um, 
he he's kind of on the boundary. He's not not necessarily firmly on a masculine or feminine side or or any particular side. He kind of you know double deals between the worlds. Um, but you know, but you know his his punishment, and of course the, the path that he's bound with the entrails of his son. Um, that's other. That's also there's also got to be a layer of meaning to that. You know the you know it's not the you know. And then, and then his other son is turned into a wolf. So there, there's definitely this symbolism here of, um, you know, the, the way in which the, um, the results of, you know, sort of the results of the action of the trickster are being, um, you know, the, the consequences of that, which has to do with sort of this, this venom, this, this, this sort of venomous side of the Shakti, this, um, you know, because because there's an out of, there's something that's out of control there. It's a it's a power or a chaotic force that's out of control. Uh, so you have this, um, you know, this the, the sort of putting you in your place with this uh, venomous aspect of the feminine. And of course, it's why it's his wife who has to who has to empty the pan of, of snake venom. So uh, it's so it's it's a very it's a very odd image. And there's there's probably a lot of amplification that you could put into that, um, but to me that's that's a definite dark feminine symbolism there. That is um, that is sort of a it's punishing the the trickster figure because Loki in in his role it's not so much that he's a trickster and that you know he isn't allowed to exist or doesn't have a role, but it's when he it's like it's like the Ashuras of uh, Hindu mythology. You know they're there, but once they get out of control, once they um, once they start trying to manipulate situations to their ends, once they're doing it in a way that may be harmful to the balance of the universe, then that's usually when the dark feminine comes back and sets things back in balance. Okay. Um, we keep a lot of people. There, there's a lot of um, a lot of us now who are, are working with the dark feminine, and and there's probably no coincidence there. We kind of live in a in, in a world, a planet, a society you know, global society that's very much out of balance and that this is the way, you know, and that this this impulse towards the dark feminine is, is meant to be a corrective, okay? So Scotty does seem to serve a corrective function of some kind, um, you know, and she's representing some kind of divine justice here. Um, justice is always a theme. It doesn't always mean the same thing that we think it does, um, you know, and, I, and I've talked about that in, in a couple of the previous episodes, is that, you know, the idea of decay is more about, um, you know, maintaining the proper boundaries of things. It's not necessarily so much about ethics as we think about it uh, today. So that is really all I have to say about Scotty. Um, try not to get, let the, you know, ramble on too long with these podcasts. Um but if you have any other thoughts on her or know anything else about her, I'd be glad to hear about it in the comments. Um, you can comment on social media. I have pages, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, Cathonia Podcast, um, in all those places. Uh, it's one word on Twitter and Instagram. It's two words on Facebook. And, of course, it's just Cathonia on YouTube, where you're also free to comment and, and leave your thoughts. Um, I would encourage anybody, you know, to, to please subscribe. Um, whether you subscribe to the podcast, whether you subscribe to the YouTube channel, whatever works for you. Um, if you're enjoying these, uh, please visit uh, cathonia.net because I have my, my whole site with everything. You know, I'll ha I have blog updates. I have, you know, a full explanation of the Cathonia concept if you're not familiar, if you're new to this. 
Um, and then I also show, you know, other related works that I've done. All the publications I have do really go directly back to this theme, fiction or nonfiction. And I also have some related services that I offer for people who are sort of, as I say, crossing your own abyss, you know, uh, dealing with your, your personal boundaries and um, your own personal, um, quote unquote, deaths, if you will. Um, so, you know, so definitely if, if that is, you know, something that uh, appeals to you or that is, uh, you know, something that you think you might need or that I might be able to help you with, and it doesn't matter, you don't have to be live anywhere near me. I do all the, I can do everything virtually, so... It's not um, not something where you have to um, you have to you have to live in my neighborhood or, or anywhere near near where I live to uh, to partake to participate in that. And uh, I also have a Patreon page Patreon.com/slash/Cathonia. Um, getting going to be having. I'm really trying to ramp up the benefits for members there. Uh, extra podcast episodes, uh, more giveaways. Uh, I'm going to be having uh, classes out. Uh, they may actually already be, probably already will be out by the time I'm putting this podcast uh, and making it live. Um, so there'll be discounts on those classes. Um, I'm trying to keep them reasonably priced, but um, you know, and you know, but these will, you know, and all on all these expertises on mythology, on um, on religion, understanding religion. Uh, on understanding some of the ancient concepts, uh, like for example, of the Trojan War and the Iliad and things like that, and I have some. I have a course that I do on the underworld and understanding the, um, you know, the the underworld, um, you know, uh, you know, mythologically throughout cultures, which is one of the main things that I've studied. So there's there's some some cool stuff that's out there and coming up if that's what interests you, um, and. I think, yeah, and then I have a site if you are just strictly interested in the services I offer. Um, yeah, I offer Reiki therapy. I also offer, um, I do all kinds of oracle readings. And what I do is usually for people, I, I do a combination of things. Depending on what they need, people can say, oh, I just want Reiki or oh, I just want a reading. But people who want the more my more comprehensive thing, it, I, I sit down with them and figure out, uh, you know, we, we look at what's going on and figure out what's what's the best um What's the best way to approach the, the situation or the issue that they have? Um, oftentimes, it may, it may involve astrology, Vedic and, and Western. Um, it may involve uh, it may involve readings of some kind, and you know. So we, we try to get down to what the pattern is and help the person establish, and then establish what might be the best way for them to to move forward. It's not the same for every person because every person's problems are different, and there's no expectation in my my. Uh, way of doing things. This is not a power of positive thinking um, or that, that kind of toxic positivity that says, well, if you just, you know, if you just had better thoughts, you wouldn't have these problems. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't operate that way because I think that's that's just completely and totally, it's actually, it's, it's unhelpful and, it, it, you know, the people who do it, as far as I'm concerned, can just piss off. I don't, I don't like that toxic positivity that, that blames you and shames you for, um, for struggling with something because oftentimes it's something that's felt in the body and you don't have any control over it. So, um, the idea that you should, well, you know, just stop thinking about it. Just think nice thoughts. It's not how it works. So, um, so that is not the way I work at all. Um, so anyway, that's just my little plug. Um, I hope you enjoyed this and, uh, I will talk to you in the next episode.